The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. I'm Sam Abu Al Samad. I'm Rebecca Lindland. All right, welcome again for another week. It's um, still winter. <laughs> uh, we sort of actually, uh, kind of on the verge of it here. Yeah, yeah. Got, got up to forty-two yesterday. Uh, there you go. We're, I mean, we're, I think we're headed for fifty today, which is going to be great uh, because we had snow and ice uh, a couple days ago. So, and I get to go to the. Um, the mountain today so we'll see how the media car does uh and the ice i made i made it rain in palm springs california yesterday oh excellent <laughs> it, it never rains in california i know there's a good song about that isn't there yeah something like that yeah although last time i was there it rained too and, and did, did everybody lose their mind Yes. Well, fortunately, I actually escaped early enough, um, but BMW had a big event there and they actually they, it looks like they were able to modify it for a lot of fun. So I give them a ton of credit because uh, we were on the track and doing autocross and all sorts of fun things that are not fun in the rain. So um, so I do feel badly for them, but it was it was good to see rain in Southern California. Uh, oh, go ahead, Sam. Are, are you able to talk about those yet or do we have to save those for a, a later date? So I, for the most part, I, I'm able to talk about most of what I what I drove. Uh, there was we got to drive in the brand new uh, BMW X7, their seven seater uh, large crossover. But we are not allowed to give driving impressions. So I asked if I could give riding impressions and I didn't get an answer. <laughs> OK, well, we'll say we'll save that one for another day. Yes, exactly. But I did get a chance to to, to drive and ride in the uh, the Rolls Royce Cullinan large that's, SUV. That's the one I'm curious about. Mm, that was delish. <laughs> it was a very satisfied. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I've seen it pop up on Twitter. You know, some of our other auto journalist friends are there, and so they're um, showing these things in in the water, basically, just in the wet. We not normally see a Rolls Royce, especially for a a drive event. Um, so that, that's got to be a little different. So that's what they that that was the modification that they made. We didn't get a chance to take it in the wet. We did take. The I, I think we took the X5 in the wet and that was fun. I got that. It pretty much was up to its tires. And that was that was really cool to see, you know, such a large SUV. I used to have an X5 uh, really do a great job through the wet. So so that was fun. But the Cullinan was um, it was a treat. I 
don't know if I would want to drive it every day, but I'm more than happy to be driven in it every day in the backseat, <laughs> mostly so I can curl my toes into the $1,500 lamb's wool floor mat. Oh, so that was, a, yeah. Oh, uh, that was creepy. Yeah. I, I remember I drove a phantom like that and it was, I think it was actually slightly rainy that day for that event. And, um, the PR guy for, uh, Rolls. We're all kind of gingerly trying not to get it dirty. He was like, they're, they're wool. Sheep get yes. wet. You can, <laughs> you can clean them off. <laughs> well, that, and that's, you know, um, not to diverse to uh, digress too much. I will say that is one of the amazing things about some of these all natural fibers is that you can clean them off. You can clean wool, animal skin, leather, you know, as long as it's not a ballpoint pen, you're doing pretty good actually. So, but it, it was a treat. I, I have to say the rolls was very, a very good steward of the brand. I, you know, very, very comfortable. It was a ton of fun. I mean, that thing went from that went from zero to 60. I got triple digits and I didn't even mean to. And I know I probably say that in every show. <laughs> uh, resident Leadfoot. Um. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's powered by a 6.75 liter engine and it needs it because it weighs almost 6,000 pounds. Um, but it was just, I mean, it moved. It absolutely moved. It has a V12 twin turbo engine, uh, 571 horsepower. It, it was just, you know, as I said, it's, it was definitely a, a worthy a worthy vehicle of, of the Rolls-Royce brand. So let me, let me ask you this. Would you rather be driven around in a Phantom or a Cullinan? Well, I'd rather drive the Phantom. Really? Because, I mean, the one time I've driven the Phantom you know, um, many, many years ago, it, it struck me as a car that was better suited to be driven, driven in than to drive, you know, cause it had, you know, like no steering feel, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, to be fair, I mean, I, my, the ghost is my favorite. Yeah. So the ghost was like a, a super sporty version of the phantom. I think the Cullinan, it's just, it's a big, it's a big vehicle. It doesn't drive overly large. I'm, but, you know, I'm not going to argue either way. If I'm in the rolls, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's right. A Fair private enough. yacht is still a private yacht. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so let's yeah. continue talking about what we're driving. And uh, so you came back and, and you're, you've are you gone a couple of rungs back down the <laughs> vehicle status ladder, but but still in a, in a good way. So you're in the 2019 Kia Forte, which is a, that's a that's a good car, even for the, the much, much less money than it rolls. Uh, yes, much less money, but yes, I, I, you know what? I've got this. Um, it's the EX version of EX trim line. It's got a 2.0 liter multi-port injection, four-cylinder engine. I love how they call it this: the intelligent variable transmission, as opposed to continuous <laughs> variable. It's a variable. Nobody wants a CVT. Exactly. Uh, but but that CVT doesn't act quite as much like a CVT. It, it is. It's very well behaved. It is very very well behaved, and this thing is. Absolutely packed. So the base, the retail price is $21,990, which is a fantastic price to start with for all the stuff that you get. I mean, that's with, you know, automatic climate control. Um, you've got the rear camera, Apple CarPlay, Android Car, Android Auto, um, you know, power 
driver's seat. You've got all the safety features. So it's got forward collision avoidance, forward collision warning, lane departure warning, lane keep. I mean, it's really stocked with, you know, this would be Hills, um, Hill Start Assist. This would be an incredibly well-equipped vehicle uh, in any case. And then for only $3,200, then you've got the, EH, the EX Launch Edition. And that's where you've got the eight-inch touchscreen navigation system. You've got a power sunroof, uh, the forward collision avoidance assist pedal, which I don't even know what that is yet. Oh, um, oh yeah, right. careful with that. <laughs> yeah, I've got to see the, what, what that's about. What, that but will, all, um, if it detects you're closing on something, it primes the braking system uh, to deliver a full power stop oh, oh, awesome. when you just tap the pedal. So, you know, what's interesting, though, it must be speed controlled because in my in my driveway, I have a stone wall at the top of my driveway and I have like sticks sticking out so I can see it. But it never I was kind of surprised because other vehicles, as I pull up to it, obviously, I'm going fairly slow. It doesn't do anything. Huh. But. This one did. But so the other, the surprise and delight, and this this is also actually a standard feature, is heated and ventilated front seats. And that, I was I was blown away by that last night. I think I told you guys, I, I sent you a, a, something in Slack because I get in this car and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And that's for $21,990. So, you know, when we were talking about the Mazda 3, now, now the Forte EX is a sedan. So that, you know, it, it does limit the cargo in it. But this thing was a lot of fun to drive. I I, I landed at LaGuardia at 530. I was in rush hour. I mean, I got into the car at like 615. So I am in the thick of, of New York rush hour traffic. And this thing was, I, I was able to, to zip in and out of traffic, get into the lanes I wanted to. You know, yeah, it did at one point. I had a, a little bit of a runway and it, it wasn't thrilled to be, you know, pedal to the metal kind of thing. <laughs> but um, that, but, that know, is my one complaint about the this new Forte is that engine um, is a little bit underpowered. Yes, it is. It is for sure. Um, but I also got it, it, the fuel economy was, is estimated at 34 and I got just over, I got 34, eight. Well, you had the throttle wide pump. open all the time. So there's no pumping losses. So it's, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm impressed with it. So even as, as the X trim, it's pretty well loaded, but if you're a bargain hunter, it starts at like $18,000. The Forte is a really good value. It's a, well, and especially so, so all in this car with the handling, with um, freight and handling is 26450 And I have to say, I mean, again, the, is it, is it luxurious? Not really, but it's stocked with all sorts of good features. And, you know, when we think back to the CX-5 that we talked about last last time for 40 grand, I've granted it's a small <laughs> crossover, but, you know, wow. I mean, this is not, but it's drive, not like the CX-5 but... has a whole lot more room. I mean, it does, granted, it does have better performance, you know, and it's got that, that crossover body style. Right, and but, it has all-wheel drive. Yeah, but, you know, aside from that, you know, I mean, I would, you know, give it maybe, you know, three or $4,000 premium for that stuff, mm -hmm. you know, th but the rest of it, you know, you're getting almost the same stuff, you know, in this Forte, you know, for the equivalent, uh, you know, let's say 10 grand less. Right. You're Exactly. I mean, I, I just, I I'm thrilled with this thing. It, it's really, it's great. So that, that makes me think of sort of two different 
questions, right? For the first is there's there's uh, stuff versus quality. Um, it's not terribly difficult as an automaker, I think, to add a lot of these features. You know, they come from your suppliers and you just figure out how they fit in your models and what you're going to price them at and uh, away you go. Uh, I think some of the difference you might find between the Forte EX, even if it has, you know, leather seats or something is, and the, that signature, what is the CX-5 signature is maybe right. the, the quality of the things you touch, sure. the quality of the leather, but that's it, it, still, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a, but, what, you know, $15,000 golf. That's, you that's know, when, when you, yeah. when you compare, you know, the Forte to its competitors in this segment, you know, it, it has a surprisingly premium feel to it too. Yeah. Uh, yes. I, I, I will acknowledge that the Mazda does feel a bit more premium than this. But better. <laughs> but, you know, but, you know, is it $10,000 exactly. better? Eh, I don't know. Yeah. But, but, and also it makes me wonder the sort of the second question I have about it is what's Kia making on these? Are they running these cars unprofitably here in the U S because they can, uh, get profit out of them in other markets and they're making profit on other things here. So it's just sort of like, yeah, I mean, whatever. You, well, you know? concept, yeah. I mean, they've got, you know, the major sources, 53% of the vehicle comes from Mexico. 44% comes from Korea. It's built in the final assembly is in Mexico. So they've done a good job of, you know, sourcing and trying to keep the sourcing relatively local 53% in Mexico. Um, so I, you know, I think they're trying to keep the the pricing the the build price down as much as possible. Yeah, well, I mean that makes that makes sense when you're selling it for very thin. I, their margin has to be razor thin. Oh, price. if at all, for sure. Yeah. But I just I think it's you know it's a and and also I I don't know what the residual value on something like this would be. Also, the Mazda <laughs> probably has a better residual value because of those things because of all wheel drive because of of it being a crossover. Um, but it, again, is it $14,000 different? I, I don't know. I just, I, I think for, if you're looking for value in your vehicle, um, I, I think it's hard to beat something like the Kia Forte EX. Yeah. You know, and the, the other thing to consider about residual values as well is it's really important if you're, you know, if you're someone who, you know, gets new cars every couple of years, you know, or, right. you know, if you're leasing all the time, then it makes a, a big difference, you know, in your, your leasing payment, your lease payment costs. On the other hand, if you're somebody like me that, you know, buys the car and keeps it for eight, nine, 10 years, the residual values, you know, by, by the time you get out to that eight, nine, 10 year period, you know, the difference in residual values among these different brands, you know, starts to shrink a lot and it's not that big a deal anymore. Right. It is. It, absolutely. It is. But I just, you know, Mazda, I mean, it, sometimes it is a little hard to compare the two, but I do think that this price gap of, of, you know, $13,900 <laughs> yeah. is enormous. Well, good it's for Mazda. This, uh, that's ambition. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. um, and before we leave it to you, you mentioned that it's sedan only, but there is the Forte 5. Are no, no, this, not the this one I have. This one I have is a sedan. Okay. The the yeah. Forte 5 that they're selling right now is still the previous generation model. That's, yeah. So the, um, they have to refresh so, it on this new platform or this new model? Uh, yeah. And presumably they will. I, th I think, you know, we'll probably see that, you know, perhaps by the end of this year. 
um, you know, or, or early next year, um, I, I think we'll see a new generation Forte 5. Yeah. Well, all right. Um, since we talked about Mazda quite a bit, let's let's pivot, Sam. You're in the uh, the CX-9 Turbo. Um, speaking yeah. of things with kind of weak engines. So, th- so this is this is the big Mazda, um, and yeah, you know, this is the the three row crossover. Um, you know, and it has the same two point five liter turbo that's that's in that CX five that we that Rebecca and I both drove. Uh, you know, and in the the smaller CX five, that that engine works well. You know, here, you know, it's more like adequate. You know, it's not. Let's put it this way: you're not going to be, you know, facing off against, you know. Uh, the Ford Edge ST or you know the new Explorer ST, you know, in this thing, it's it's not meant for that. It's meant it's meant for more. This this is your your basic premium family hauler. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> you know, so this, uh, you know, but even even at that, you know, it's not quite as the, the third row is not as big as what you're going to find in uh, you know some of the other bigger three row crossovers. This is going to be more. More competitive with something like the uh, the Kia Sorento um, or uh, you know the GMC Acadia, you know. So it's on the the smaller end of three row crossovers, you know. Uh, so you know you want basically you're talking you know younger kids in that third row, not necessarily uh, adults. Adults are not going to be happy in that third row for longer periods of time. If if you need to carry you know, more people for longer period, more larger people for longer periods of time, you're definitely going to want something, something bigger beyond that though. I mean, the, the rest of this vehicle is really nice. Well, actually, there's also the climate control thing, which Dan, you've complained about in the past that the air conditioning you felt was kind of weak, uh, given the, you know, the time of year, I didn't really have an opportunity to evaluate the, the air conditioning. <laughs> you don't say. The air conditioning is um, great in you Michigan. You get to point us. January. Yeah, the air conditioning is great in Michigan in February. You know, I don't know what you're complaining about. I just rolled um, out the window. You don't so even use I'll, it. <laughs> I'll, so I'll, I'll, I'll let that go for another time. But, um, you know, the, the rest of the vehicle, you know, it has that same kind of premium feel that we've become used to in all you know, current generation Mazdas, you know, really nice materials, really well executed. Um, and, you know, the one that I was driving, driving was uh, like 42 and a half, which, you know, in comparison to the CX-5, you know, I would, or, or sorry, no, uh, total came to 45, $45,060 uh, all in, including delivery charge. So, you know, but still, you know, at that price point for this larger vehicle and, and given that you're getting more stuff for that, it's a little closer to being reasonable in price. And I think it's, you know, it's more competitive, uh, you know, price wise with, you know, with the rest of the segment than the CX-5, which I think, you know, is on is definitely is absolutely on the high end of what you should be paying for a compact crossover, you know, for an upper midsize crossover like this one. You know, I think the forty-five thousand dollars price point is not not totally out of line. Did you have the Grand Touring or the Signature or which trim? Uh, this one was the Grand Touring all-wheel drive in uh, snowflake white pearl. Oh, that's pretty. With the sand interior. That's which very, was, that, that's the yeah, way I would pick it. Yeah, no, it was <laughs> it was really nice. Um, you know, unfortunately, the uh, you know I got it uh, the day before heading out to Chicago. Uh, for the auto show last week, and we got hit by uh, an overnight 
bout of freezing rain. And you know, so the first morning I got up to drive it to the train station, you know, it was all encased in a quarter inch of ice that I had to scrape off the thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I can say that while while you may complain that the air conditioning was was somewhat on the weak side, the heating system it it heated it heated up very quickly, and you know the uh, rear window defogger uh, you know did uh, break up the ice on the back window uh, very quickly. Well, see, there so, you go. That was actually one of the things I was going to ask about was um, seeing if it's just like a undersized system overall, or if it's just the air conditioner. I, I think it, I think it's just the the AC side of it may be a little under capacity for for the size of the vehicle. The rest of it is you know is great. Um, and like I said, you know the engine you know compared to what's available as an option in in a lot of the competition, the engine's not particularly strong. But I did I, you know I didn't find it particularly weak need either. You know I, I thought you know the 250 horsepower is is adequate for for the size of vehicle. Yeah, I, I think. What you what we see with Mazda is we tend to really like them. I'm not sure that the market likes them as as much. And you know when you sort of shoot these cars out, shoot the CX-9 out against this competition, it's lovely to drive and it's pretty and the materials are nice inside. The design is very nice, but uh, those those practical things like is it is it as roomy? Is it uh, you know on par as good a value as? Uh, which we talked about the Acadia, I think, is, is a competitor for it, or the Sorrento. I mean, the Sorrento is a very good value. So, uh, Mazda. I, I would to say, be like, certainly compared to the Acadia, it's it's absolutely yeah, a very good value G- and GMC's probably a better, pricey, yeah. better a better value. Um, you know, GMC, you know, is in that same, you know, trying to go, you know, more premium. You know, their their vehicles are more premium priced, and I would say that this is absolutely a better value. Um, than the Acadia and, you know, absolutely, you know, at the price point has a, a, you know, much nicer cabin, you know, it's a much, much more pleasant place to be, um, you know, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think what else, uh, what else is in this kind of, you know, the Sorrento is another one, you know, the, the previous generation, um, Santa Fe, uh, you know, the, the three row Santa Fe, you know, I think this, this is a better choice than the Santa Fe. I think it was better executed than the old Santa Fe. Um, you know, the, uh, the you know this would probably be comparable to like the new Palisade or the Telluride, okay. Although those might be a, a little bigger. So, uh, you know, I think I think it's it's definitely it's definitely worth a look. You know, if you're in the you know kind of the the five plus two, you know, looking for a five plus two as opposed to a full seven seater. Yep. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Or or you can keep all your money and get a Dodge Journey. Because <laughs> you can still get a journey, and, and it's shocking how many journeys Fiat Chrysler still manages to sell. You know, at you know, at bargain basement prices, and actually, it's shocking how 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 much better the journey feels now than it did ten years ago when it first launched. I mean, when we were shopping for the Grand Cherokee, um, we first tried a Durango. The Durango felt too big. Uh, for my wife, it was just it's too long. The back window is the visibility isn't as good. So they suggested we try a journey. OK, I was shocked at how much she she liked it because, you know, it's it, it's very easy to drive. It's very car like um, it does have that extra row. It has all the features. It was an updated version. So it has the, the interior that it currently has, which is pr- pretty nice. Um, and I was just like, we're, we're not buying this. <laughs> <laughs> like I was like, it's fine now, but but it, this is 
this is essentially a stretched out compass and no we're not buying <laughs> it's like I'm, I, we could have gotten out the door in the twenties with it, and I think that's the thing. Is it? it I still like it because it's a, it's. If you want to talk about value, like it's nobody pays sticker for that. It's, it's yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's not a it's not a terrible vehicle anymore. You no, know? it has all and, the features, all the features yeah. you want. And and for for what it's worth, I'm I'm just looking at the uh, the Sorento pricing. Uh, the Sorento SX uh, Limited um, goes for forty six four ninety, so it's actually a little bit more than this. So. You know, probably, you know, probably if you went for, uh, uh, you know, one, one that was pretty much comparably equipped, it, it would be in the same price range for a Sorento as this one. So I think, I think the value proposition is actually not as bad here as what, you know, as what we saw with the CX-5. Yeah. I think the CX-5 really gets, uh, it gets and, stuck in some ways. Because- and, and, and one, one advantage this one does have is, uh. You know, like other Mazdas, it does have a, a central rotary control knob on the console for the infotainment system. So there's, there's the the display is also a touchscreen, but I you know I prefer to use it with the control knob, uh, which you know I find is is a better way to interface with with these systems than a touchscreen while you're driving. And it does have Android Auto and CarPlay support now. Yeah, it's it's hard to not recommend the cx9 for people who like driving um but where i'm cautious about it is just like you got to try one in the summer because <laughs> yeah. there's nothing worse than like a full car in the heat in august and it just it just won't get comfortable like that that to me is a problem um but if that's my only complaint you know that that's something they can fix so yeah um all right what about you dan i i Drew the luxury card this week. I, I have a Lincoln Nautilus black label, um, which I was a little skeptical about at first because this is basically an edge. Uh, they've done a pretty good job at differentiating it for the most part. Uh, it has, you know, a distinctive look about it, especially sort of the front, I don't know, front half of it. <laughs> you know, looks very Lincoln from the back. It's, yeah, okay, it's an, it's an edge. It was the MK, what was it, MKX before? Yeah. Yeah. Same, same, same thing. And there's only so much you can do on that, uh, you know, existing architecture. And so I also didn't expect that it was going to feel, you know, tight and new. I thought it was going to be like my sort of usual impressions of this, this vehicle, no matter what badge it wears. Like, yeah, okay. It's, it's got the 2.7 liter twin turbo and all wheel drive. So it's, it's powerful, but also has big wheels. Um, I've never met one of these that didn't feel kind of clumsy. Um, no matter how well it, it it could actually handle, it just, it feels like there's a lot of mass moving around because there, there is, you know, it's got big, big wheels. It's heavy to begin with. Uh, I was actually really, really surprised at whatever kind of updating has gone on with the Nautilus, uh, or maybe, maybe I myself has softened. I don't know, <laughs> but, uh, this is, you've a, been beaten into submission. Yeah. Um, this is an outstanding highway car. Uh, and I, I can't, I can't really see, uh, first of all, I've got, um, this is either a pre-production or, or something. It doesn't have a price on the, the Monroney. So I think it's about $62,000 and it comes really well equipped for that kind of money. I think that's, um, it that's, should, cause it starts at 40. <laughs> yeah. So it has, you know, you, it starts to add up when you get the, the all-wheel drive and the the turbo v6 and um 
so the assistance packages and stuff. The, the uh, black label really includes pretty much everything. There's not not too many options to select because they're already all there. You know, yeah. Has, the black label starts at fifty six eight ninety five. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, that's fine. Um, you know, it, and it's it's really nicely done. The interior, it, it, for in particular, is is beautiful and it feels luxurious. And that was my problem with earlier versions of the MKC I'd driven. Is they they drive with that little bit of grittiness that the Edge has in it, or it had. I haven't driven an Edge in a while now. Um, where it just, you know, you, you feel like it does everything fine, but it's just it's not as smoothly damped or just carefully attended to as you'd expect in a luxury vehicle. And and this Nautilus doesn't have that anymore. It feels really nicely done. It it uh, I have actually had it in comfort mode, which is kind of odd for me, <laughs> but it, it does. It really uh, it it goes down the road, especially the highway, very comfortably, not not sloppy. Um, and there's plenty of power from the Nano V6, so it'll it'll hustle, no problem. Handles decently. It does still have a little bit of uh, awkwardness over certain surfaces, but I, I think it makes up for it by being very smooth, very comfortable. It's got the 22-way multi-contour seats, which are... Um, only nice. 22 ways? I know, only on. 22 ways. And they I could, found they couldn't one put the 30-way seats from the Navigator in there? Uh, I didn't like the Navigator seats, actually. Uh, these are, uh, it's just, you know, and it's, it's, it's bigger than, uh, some of the other competitors, or at least it's, it's big enough to be quite useful. You know, it's, it's got a roomy cargo area, roomy back seat. Um, the center console in between the seats has areas carved out of it for, for storage. Um, and I was trying to compare it. I was, anytime I get in one of these this class of vehicles, whether it's a Cadillac or a Lincoln or, um, you know, infinity or whatever, I always compare it to the Lexus RX because I feel like that's still the benchmark for the class. And, um, in the past I'd had a hard time sort of stacking up, uh, the domestic competition against that Lexus. Um, and it, that's not my favorite car either. The Lexus feels like I, I, ha I have my complaints about it. I will say, <laughs> uh, but this, this feels really, really uh, I'm, I'm not sure opulent is the right word, but it's it's it feels like it offers you more, uh, and it's more distinctive than you might find in the the Lexus because it has that Lincoln personality. You know, it's got uh, Alcantara all up the, the like the pillars and everything. So everything you touch is really really nice, and and that hasn't always been the case. And I think if you were to jump into a Cadillac, you'd find stuff to touch that's not nice. <laughs> that that to me is the biggest difference. I mean, I agree. I I drove the Nautilus a few months ago, uh, at the launch, and it wasn't the black label version of it, but the interior was just gorgeous. It yeah. was just it was it was it. I mean, it it. I agree. It's darn near close to opulent and it was just beautiful and that to me is the biggest biggest competitive advantage that they have over Cadillac because I was just I was really disappointed I continue to be really disappointed in Cadillac's interior and I just I don't know it 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 breaks my heart a little bit because Cadillac is Cadillac. Like right. I, I, I think I've gone on this rant before, but <laughs> you know, it just, I, I'm, I'm very conscious of, of good stewardship, you know, who is being a good steward of their brand. And 
I just, the interiors that Cadillac is putting out, are, it, it's just not a good representation. Whereas I think Lincoln, oh my gosh. I mean, their, their interiors are just gorgeous. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, they, they are a very pleasant place to spend time when you're driving. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's a very pleasant car to drive. I think, you know, I'm not damning with faint praise by saying it's an outstanding highway car. I mean, that's, that's been the majority of my commute anyway. And it's, it's just excellent. You know, and it has all of the ADAS systems work pretty well. Um, it does it with the lane keeping sort of lets you wobble a little more than I'm, I'm comfortable with uh, over towards the lines, but you're supposed to pay attention. So I was just, I was testing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, and and the flip side is if it's more aggressive, then it becomes a little bit intrusive. So there is that that balance. But yeah, I mean, this is just I could I could get in this thing and just drive all the way to Wisconsin without yeah without a problem, and it would it would just be fine. Um, and so that's that's impressive, you know. I I, uh, I think that their edge is the interior, and they they're working with what they've got, right? They've got certain platforms. They may not have sort of the driver's car cachet that any of the Cadillac sedans have, um, but they've they've got platforms that they understand. You know, this is not new stuff here. Um, but, but they've you know they're they're also not you know they are they have they've made it clear that they're not trying to. Um, to address that same market that Cadillac was, you know, Cadillac basically tried to go after the, the premium German brands, you know, the BMW, Mercedes, Audi, um, you know, as driver's cars. And Lincoln said, you know what, there's, there's enough competitors in that space. We're going to try and do our thing. We're, we're, we're not going to try to take them head on in that way, but we're going to try to create a better overall experience for the driver yeah. and, and for the passengers. And I think, I think it's working for them. The tech is, is quite sophisticated. You know, the, is it, is it my Lincoln touch or do they have another name for it now? Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, no, it's, I think it's my, just sync three sync three. Uh, I didn't yeah. know if Lincoln had a name for it. Um, I don't think they have a separate yeah, name for I'm it. Look, no, I think I'm just, I, and I apologize. I actually was in the black label when I drove it oh, uh, in the fall uh, yeah, I, I I drove the black label as well when we were out in Santa Lincoln Barbara. Copilot, Lincoln Copilot 360. Copilot is their ADAS package. Yeah, that's their ADAS package, and then see, yeah, yeah it's, it's just it's just Sync Three, I believe okay. is yeah. what they call it. You know, so thinking back to the Lexus system, uh, I think Sync Three. Did, did you have the ultra comfort seats with active motion? Um, I th those are the massaging ones. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yes. <laughs> um, it's, Love for $62,000, right? Like, it sounds like a lot of money for it. It's not. For what you get in this thing, it's loaded. It has, the only thing I think I missed was like a heated steering wheel, um, which was surprising to me that doesn't have at this, but it's a, I think yeah. that's a standalone option. Um, but yeah, I mean, and I think it's a really smart play for them to make the interior that good because you can spend that money on, stuff you don't see, right? Like suspension tuning and chassis bracing and, you know, specking different tires. But And that will make a difference to people who notice. But the majority of people who buy these things, they're not going to use that and they're not going to appreciate it. And they might actually not like it if it's tuned too aggressively. So put the money into the stuff that they're in all the time. You know, make it yeah. feel really good. Make it look really good. It's beautiful. It's got a, uh, I think the, interior is called cashmere i don't know they have to use funny names um but yeah everything it's just 
it it feels like it's worth the money and i think that was the that's the first step that both cadillac and lincoln really needed to get over and so i'm i'm impressed with it because it's it's sort of come into its own um and it you know it drives quite well i've really loved that 2.7 liter v6 i like it in everything i i want it in the mustang just <laughs> so was it the was it the white one? Did the cream cream yes, is chalet? It's the chalet. The chalet. It's, it's the chalet theme. Yeah. They have different themes in the the interior, and it sounds corny, but I think as a buyer, you, you get into that. You you like it when you're going to plunk down your money on these. Um, you, it's it's fun to sort of play um, you know dream house with it to a certain. Well, you know, right. and the and the other thing that comes with black label is you know they they do a little curation of the the color palette. You know, for you, you know, and, and have certain, you know, typically three combinations on any given model. But then you also get, you know, a bunch of other things that they throw in, you know, like free car washes. You know, you can go mm-hmm. to the dealer and get a free car wash. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of other things that they that they tack on as part of the black label package to to try to enhance the overall customer experience. Well, and that's that's the way yep. to attract and retain customers is to treat them like humans. Yeah, I think that Lincoln has done a really good job of celebrating the domestically oriented luxury buyer. And and there that is a thing the, you know, yeah. as I think I said it before, but these are the people that if they won the lottery, they would buy the most tricked out Ford F-150 they could find. <laughs> well, right? They'd be spending $130,000. <laughs> they would be. But, but, you know, but these are the people that, you know, like, when you look at some of the black label, uh, some of the the attributes that it comes with, you know, culinary collections, you get early access to, you know, um, curated list of exquisite restaurants. It all sounds kind of hokey on the one hand, but on the other hand, you know what? That's really kind of nice. Yeah. If, if that's your lifestyle, premium maintenance, vehicle care, uh, you know, Sam, as you said, you know, complimentary car washes. I have to tell you right now, as Pick a up as, a delivery, right? So as uh, a Buick owner, I have to beg right. my dealership to wash my car when I bring it in for service, which I have complained repeatedly to Buick about because it's outrageous to me that, oh, they, yeah. that that is not a thing automatically. And the, the fact that you can't get a loner? No, I can't. I can't get a loner right? when I take my car. It's like, what am I supposed to do? You know, it's insane. Like, um, I think they've done. You know, their the website is beautiful. I just I think that they've done a really really nice job of celebrating that buyer which cadillac basically said you should be buying german and if you're not buying german then you should buy this you know <laughs> Just- yeah and, and like i look i like driver's cars for sure but i, I you know and then lincoln has quietly sort of managed this um because i think i've i've been very isn't there a thing quiet luxury yeah, so well done yeah. well done you <laughs> I, I think um they're they're not still not doing a good job of telling their story you know they need to look i like matthew mcconaughey but uh their ads are are weird and and this is it's really the lexus playbook to treat people that well and that's what makes loyal customers and so i'm glad that they've learned from that and um you you know while i i think this is kind of an old set of hardware it it uh sort of it it uh presents well i guess it it, I, uh, i think they've done a nice job their interiors are just gorgeous yeah, I would like to see the Nautilus in sort of standard select trims, you know, the, the sort of two lower end trims and see how it measures up. Because it's it's really easy in the, the sort of automaker trick, right, is let's put our most fully loaded model into the press fleet and get all of the kudos. Of course. So right. I wonder what it's like at that forty or $44,000 level. But, uh, you know, I, I hope that it's good. <laughs> That's yeah. the best I can say. It's, you know, I think 
I think we, we had a chance to, I think they had some of those, uh, certainly the select uh, or the, whatever the mid-level trim was <clears throat> at the, uh, the press launch. And I think, you know, the, they're not dramatically different. Uh, you know, in terms of, of what you get, you know, some, you're not going to get the 22 way seats, you know, for example, sure. you're going to get 12 way seats, which, you know, are in general are going to be fine. Oh, you know? darn. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and even, even with the four cylinder engine, the, the two liter four cylinder, you know, it's, you know, it, it's not going to have, you know, quite the aggressive acceleration that you're going to get with the, the, the V6, but, you know, it's still more than adequate. And, you know, when you're talking about this, you know, this whole quiet luxury theme, you know, you, you're not looking for all out acceleration performance all the time anyway. Right. Right. No, I I'm uh, I'm hopeful. Uh, it's sort of the first time in a while that I've, I've, you know, Lincoln still has a couple blind spots in their lineup. Uh, and it's good that this particular size class of crossover isn't one of them, because this is, this is a really important segment um you know they, it would be good to see lincoln get a version of the escape well they have the mkc um yeah well and, and that you know that's we're get, we're probably going to see the corsair uh sometime this you know before the end of this year um maybe even at the new york auto show i'm not sure when that's coming out uh, it'll probably it'll probably be either new york or, or sometime in the summer uh which will be the replacement for the mkc uh, based off the the new generation uh, escape platform. Yeah, and then uh, it would be, I'd be really curious to see what Lincoln would do with an Echo Sport, Echo Sport size, not the actual Echo Sport. Not there's only so much <laughs> you can do with that. But yeah, I think we'll probably have to wait, you know, another year or two for that, um, you know, for the next generation Echo Sport platform to to arrive before before that comes out. Yeah, that's the, I'm 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 impressed. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, just looking through, I just I pulled up my local dealership here, and the majority of the vehicles that they have at the Stamford Lincoln dealership is the Select. So they seem to be stock Select and Reserve. I would say are the um, so they're, they're in the fifty sevens. They've got a couple of black labels that are in the sixty threes, but it looks like for the most part, what they're stocking dealerships with is that Reserve. Which is in the mid fifties. Yeah, and that makes sense. I think those those are the two mill trims. There's four trims, so yeah. Um, most yeah. people are going to shoot again, in the I, middle anyway. Right, exactly. Um, but I think it's 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 certainly something that people should consider, uh, just based on on the interiors and and the ride and handling. And I think it's a I think it's a great family car. Yeah, for the opulent family. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Gold plated. The, the opulent family of four. <laughs> right. Yes. Not, not, no, you can get you five. Know, what, what, well, you can get yeah. five. But I mean, if you, you know, like if you have to do car seats, you know, if you still, oh, if, okay. if you still have younger ones, you'd probably want a three row in that case. Right. Well, they also offer, sir, over here is the navigator. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, this summer they're going to have the aviator. Do they so still I have the MKT? <laughs> uh, well, they do for fleet. For fleet only, is yeah. that? Yeah, I got to say, though, I so I drove the Navigator from um, from Irvine, California, up to um, where is this located? I drove it up through rush hour traffic and, and drove it up to um, around the Thousand Oaks area. And I was absolutely Ooh, that's a terrible drive. <laughs> yes, it is. It, I, I don't Going think up I, the 405? Trying to, um, I'm trying to get the location of this. Cause I don't remember exactly where I was, which is terrible. I know. Uh, but I was, it was more along the coast, but I got to tell you that nav, the, the navigator was 
was surprisingly good to drive. I mean, it's not sporty, but, you know, again, I was able to navigate through the traffic. Oh, no pun intended. That was bad. Um, <laughs> the way that, you know, in, in a in a much more pleasant manner than I had expected, because whenever I, I'm driving one of those really big cars, I always look to see just does it drive bigger or smaller than it looks? And that navigator definitely drove smaller than it looked. Oh, I went up to um, uh, San Santa Anise oh, Ventura. Santa yeah, Santa Inez. Goleta. I was in that area. So the only so uh, again, it was you know not a great time to drive it. It was definitely crowded. I mean, through that the one hundred one through L A is always a nightmare, and it. You know, I, I really felt like I was in a smaller vehicle and I loved the super high riding position. It was really easy to get in and out of. So as a smaller female, you know, if I had a if I had kids, I would initially look at the navigator and say, you've got to be kidding me. But when once I was in it, it was incredibly comfortable and just driving it. Yeah. It, Rove just so much smaller than it looks. Well, so part, so part of that, I think, is because it's a truck, right? The windows come down further um, because it's, it's yeah, side yeah, impact they, is different. You're not in this little cocoon. You've got yeah. lower sort of window. I, I'll call it window sills. I don't know what the actual word is, but, you know, they, they come down further. So you have more visibility out. You feel more in command. Uh, right. I, I like really big things in, in heavy traffic like that. If they're, you know, big, comfortable SUVs, especially if they have dynamic crews and stuff, you just kind of... You can you can let it do its thing. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Well, and the funny thing is that I actually had an Aston Martin in the middle of this trip. That <laughs> so, sounds like an awful trip. <laughs> <laughs> so I was buzzing around in the Aston Martin Vantage down in the San Diego area. And then I went, I, I had to drop off the Aston at, at Kelly Blue Book and pick it up the Navigator. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that you sacrificed for the... <laughs> For that, so that you could bring the impressions. Uh, I, I'm very brave. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm always, I am a sacrificer. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That, that's, that's, that's what we're here for is, you know, to fall on the grenade so that our listeners don't have to. <laughs> right. We, we drove this stuff. So, right. So you don't have to. Right. Uh, exactly. All right. Well, let's let's do some topics because there's been a couple of things going on, as there always are. Uh, the, the most shocking, I think, uh, recently is just, numbers weirdness with NHTSA and autopilot safety and um, uh, the study that just uh, they it almost seems like they didn't want this to get out until they were FOIA'd and <laughs> they had to admit. And like, even then they didn't. Yeah. You know, they yes. fought it for two years. Yeah. So let's sort of um, can you give us sort of the quick summary? Yeah. So uh, going back to uh, May of 2016, uh, we had the, the fatal crash, Josh Brown and a Tesla Model S in Florida. Um, that was the, the was that the truck one where that, he that was. Uh, yeah. Where where his Model S um, on autopilot went, the, went underneath the truck. Right. Uh, it didn't it thought left. it was the sky and didn't recognize yes. it as white. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and. So uh, both NTSB, National Transportation Safety Board, and NHTSA did an investigation into the crash. Uh, they found that while they, they declared that autopilot wasn't necessarily at fault, um, that uh, Tesla was not doing a good enough job of 
informing customers of what the system was capable of, or, or more importantly, what it's not capable of. Um, and also, you know, made some other suggestions, but one of the, the things that came out of the, the NHTSA report was that they declared that, uh, cars, <clears throat> Tesla cars equipped with autopilot, uh, after, after they enabled autopilot, their incidents of, uh, airbag deployments from crashes dropped by 40%. But they never gave any of the any of the background data as to how they came up with that number. And I actually re- tried to reach out at the time to Tesla. You know, I asked them several times. You know, if you know if they had the data. You know, what where was the data that that came, where that number came from? And they, of course, never responded to that. Well, sir, um, we just and, made it up. <laughs> yeah, and I I didn't I, you know uh, I I didn't I didn't pursue it. But um, another uh, company called, uh, let's see, uh, safety contr- uh, quality control systems, uh, led by a guy named Rad- Randy Whit- Whitfield, filed a FOIA request uh, with NHTSA to try to get the the data, you know, of where they came up with this forty percent number, and NHTSA fought for two years not to release this. You know, it, they basically they claimed that you know that. Um, this is proprietary data from Tesla and releasing it, you know, could be harmful to Tesla. Well, yeah, it could be harmful to Tesla because it shows that the number was nonsense. Um, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> uh, but they they finally, the court finally um, for, forced NHTSA to release the data. Uh, and so uh, Whitfield went through and did a pretty thorough analysis of all this stuff. And, um, uh, Ed Niedermeyer's got a pretty good uh, had a pretty good write up earlier this week on the drive uh, on on what they found and basically as he said they essentially made it up uh, you know there there were at the time uh, there were about forty thousand odd uh, forty three thousand seven hundred eighty one cars uh, that were nominally part of the study but of those only fifty seven hundred actually had full verifiable data of how many miles had been driven before autopilot was enabled and after autopilot was enabled. But they used the full 44,000 car fleet to calculate these numbers. And so for the ones where they didn't have data, they, they basically just made some assumptions, um, which had nothing to back those assumptions up. And uh, when Whitfield went through and, and, you know, did his analysis, uh, he found that essentially the way NHTSA made their assumptions dramatically skewed the results in favor of uh, autopilot, you know, showing that autopilot was in fact safer. But if you, you know, take out the the numbers that can't be verified and, and focus on, you know, the verifiable stuff um, and, you know, and take out some of the other assumptions, it actually shows that the cars were actually much safer beforehand. So, you know this this is a this is a real problem you know, i mean nitsa is not here to promote right. you know to promote any particular company or technology they're supposed to be promoting safety in general so what's you know? their what's their motivation for making those assumptions like you should you should know that you don't assume <laughs> you know yeah i you know it, it's it's hard to say you know without you know, knowing, you know, all the deliberations that went on internally. Um, but, you know, if you go back to 2016, 
you know, 2015, 2016 timeframe, um, you know, in the previous administration, there was certainly, um, you know, a lot of motivation to promote uh, Tesla and to promote electric vehicles, much more so than there is under the, the current administration in Washington. Um, you know, so perhaps, you know, some people within the agency, um, you know, perhaps even including the, the, the then administrator, uh, you know, decided that, you know, it was worth it to go down this path. Uh, you know, the, the administrator at the time was uh, Mark Rosekind, who is now the chief safety officer of Zooks. Uh, you know, and, you know, he had, you know, during his time uh, initially at NTSB as a member of the National Transportation Safety Board, and then as NHTSA administrator, you know, was always a very strong proponent of safety technologies and and uh, driver assist systems and, and automation systems. You know, I don't know, I can't say where, you know, where where this originated within the agency and you know who who made the decisions to to do it this way but you know this this is a real black eye for the agency and it does not bode well um you know if they continue to to you know do the same kind of thing in promoting automated driving technology which in a way they kind of are by being so hands off um with you know trying to, you know, with their approach to regulating it or, or more accurately not regulating the technology, um, you know, then I think, you know, we may be in for a world of hurt, um, you know, by allowing companies to put stuff out on the road that hasn't really been properly tested, hasn't been properly vetted um, and, and proven to actually be a benefit. Um, you know, I think that this technology can be a real benefit, can be a real safety benefit, but we haven't actually proven that yet. Yeah. Uh, the Well, the other thing that sticks out is that the the cars before autopilot was enabled um, were safer. Now, I don't know whether that's the cars. My suspicion is that it's actually behavior that plays a role in, in there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, one, one of the issues with autopilot is, you know, we've seen from all the videos that have been posted on YouTube over the last several years, a lot of Tesla drivers, you know, behaving badly with autopilot, you know, assuming that it, you know, or treating it as if it's a fully automated system and, you know, doing all kinds of stupid things, which ultimately lead to, you know, can lead to crashes. Well, let's face it, you know, we still have examples of where pilots have done this. This was years ago. Um, there was a small commuter plane that flew into Buffalo uh -huh. and the pilots ignored all of the warnings because they were they it, they had they had taken it so much for granted by then that they just weren't paying attention and the plane crashed. And I think that we we have to you know keep reminding people that autopilot in Tesla does not mean it's a level five self-driving vehicle or a level four, whatever one you want. But it's, I do think that the, these ADAS systems can help a lot. You know, again, last night I was in, you know, stuck in all that traffic. And when you see a lane opening, you know, having the blind spot monitoring, having you know, the lane departure warnings, having these kinds of feedback that the vehicle gives you, those are all things that are really helpful. But the idea that you can, you know, go sit in the back seat and watch a movie is not realistic. They're trying to change that though. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think also you, we saw this back 
I, you know, in the in the forties, fifties, and sixties, when automakers really resisted uh, any kind of statistical analysis, and it was the army that started it, right? When they noticed that they had a lot more casualties off base, around bases, uh, and they're like, "Look, we we can't be losing people." <laughs> before we even send them anywhere. Um, so let's get a handle on this. And then that research got picked up by actuaries and it wound up with, with Ralph Nader with unsafe at any speed. Say what you will about it. Um, it really spurred a more statistical scientific testing, you know, uh, a better way to do things than just wild safety claims. If you look back at the safety claims that automakers were making in the the forties and fifties, with our padded dashboard is safer. Like it's the maybe the appearance of safety, but underneath that quarter inch of padding is still metal. <laughs> you're gonna right. <laughs> you're gonna break your face. Uh, so a lot of the things that we take for granted now um, are because of that very aggressive push, and it was it was divisive and it was polarizing, and the automakers hated it, and it it did make cars heavier and more expensive to a certain degree. Um, but but it also made them a lot safer, and you know yeah a a lot you know given the number of miles we drive today. You know, we have reduced the number of traffic fatalities or the, the rate of traffic fatalities by about 80% over the last 40 years. Yeah, they're amazingly the safe. Mid-1970s. You're not going to spear yourself on, uh, you know, shiny bullet shaped switches in a crash. Or steering wheel like, hubs. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, a lot of it, a lot of these things seem like common sense, but they they weren't there before somebody started looking at it and saying, you know, all this automotive gore. <laughs> We can we can get rid of a lot of that. Uh, so let's please not not go back to that. I'm, uh, in a, in the the forty percent number is probably I don't know if if that tipped you off, Sam, when the numbers sort of came out. I think that's what tipped Ed off. Uh, was like something's not right here. That's much too. Yeah, large. There, I mean there, there were there were a bunch of us that you know that saw that number and and thought you know there's something something's not right here. This does not make sense. I think that this emphasizes the need for independent, objective points of view and analysis, uh, not just relying on government conclusions or government uh, entities to say whether something is safe or not. You know, I, I, I mean, I'm glad that he did this because it's we have to continue to encourage multiple outlets looking at any kind of results, not just Tesla related. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You, you know, in in any kind of you know scientific study or, or any any other study or research, you know you do peer review. You you need to have right. other people take a look at your results and do a sanity check on it. Exactly. Yeah. And and I think probably the most troubling thing about this this whole situation is that NHTSA fought this for two years, yes. fought releasing these numbers. You know there is no excuse for that. You know NHTSA is a government agency. They belong to us. You know yes. to the people paying for it. And we have a right to every single piece of data that they collect. You know, that that's nothing not that what they, the lobbyists say. Well, that's bullshit. <laughs> they're, they're wrong. We, you know, we yeah. should have we should have everything that they produce should be open source. And, you know, we should have the, the ability to take a look at it and and analyze it and verify it independently. Yeah, because yeah. the, the flip side is nobody wants this, right? The insurance industry becomes the good guy here. Do you want the insurance industry? <laughs> yeah. but, but that's what, it's actually what happens is because IIHS does their own independent testing. So we have NHTSA and IIHS sort of counterbalancing each other. Um, 
that that's not a real great place to be in a in a you know in a certain way. Um, but yeah, the insurance industry is going to chase this stuff down because they're paying to fix the stuff and the people that get hurt when right. incidents happen. So uh, they need to know. And you'd be shocked at how accurate and granular their numbers are. Oh yeah. Well, and I, I saw this, you know, when I wrote um, and, and contributed to a couple of National Academies of Science committees on one was on fuel economy standards and one was on electric vehicle deployment. And people definitely have an agenda when they are sitting at that table. You know, there's I brought in um, Strategic Vision, which does new car buyer surveys and to talk about some of their results for uh, for people that bought electric vehicles and people that did not buy electric vehicles. And this also is some of the work I did in Saudi Arabia. And so after Alexander Edwards presented to the committee and showed, you know, the the how what people prioritized when it came to their vehicle selection, one of the academics at the table said, well, you can make numbers say anything you want. And she just completely dismissed it, yeah. <laughs> everything, because it didn't match with what she wanted to see. And meanwhile, she rode a bicycle to work and didn't even <laughs> own a car. Well, so, and she's sitting at the table. You know, I, it was just horrifying. Yeah, that's, that's I think. And, and you know, because I come at it from an advertising background, um, I'm looking at behavior and right. I, I can't. It's so much more difficult to force a change in behavior for customers and we're seeing this with with electric cars to a certain degree and is you gotta you've got to go where they are you know we we say very flip you know it's a fish where the fish are but it's it's true you meet the customer where they are so if they're not going to buy the volt figure out what they are going to buy and make right. that and you know i think that's why a lot of ev projects start off as high-end cars because those are the people with the interest um tesla has helped burnish the image of that sort of as a as a tech device it's it's the cool iphone of cars um and they have the money so they start it there and then bring it down is always the plan right we're going to sell the expensive one and that's going to fund the cheap one we're we're not there yet but <laughs> no but i mean but that's the thing is that the early adopters the profile of innovators and early adopters are people that have find that that are willing to risk and willing and have the money to do so and and that's where you know that's where general motors went wrong not making chevrolet or cadillac their luxury their their electric vehicle brand you know, because that's what people want. People that are willing to buy an electric vehicle, first of all, it's usually not their only car. They're not price sensitive. They're risk oriented. They're innovators, entrepreneurs, and they don't want to come home after a long day and drive a Chevy. You know, they want to drive a Cadillac. And so, you know, that's it's so Tesla has done. They've done a lot of good for electric vehicles and getting the technology out there. But Obviously, there's also a lot of issues as well. Yeah, well, and I think too, it's it's. I almost wonder if the EV part of Tesla is not not most of the story. Now, I think when I hear of Tesla, a lot of people are talking about or asking me about the the ADAS tech, the self driving, the autopilot, and how cool all that is. And right, um, the EV stuff is like, yeah, it's electric. That's fine. What's there to say about that? Uh, versus the all of the other stuff that Tesla's will do. Well, but I think that I think that what Tesla has done is they've almost you know, they've normalized the electric vehicle. So people want a Tesla as you say for for the 
for the brand image, for the cool factor, for the fact that they keep your dog safe <laughs> in dog mode. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it happens to be an electric vehicle. Uh, I see what you know what the Audi e-tron that is the Audi, you know, it happens to be an electric vehicle. Uh, but it, I think it does, I think this e-tron is a good example of where it does meet people where they are. It's an SUV and that's what people want. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, but so Tesla's done a good job of kind of saying, well, of course it's an electric vehicle. You know, why wouldn't it be? Um, and it just happens to do all these other cool things. Yeah. And, and you know, in fact, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, innovation at Tesla. And, you know, the, the ADAS stuff, you know, they, they've done, you know, kind of a, a half-assed job at a lot of it. But I think, you know, one area where they actually have done some really interesting things that doesn't get talked about a lot is, uh, you know, in terms of their, um, on, the, on the electric side, on the electric propulsion side, the, uh, the efficiency of their system. Mm. Yeah, and this is something I've talked to clients about. You know, um, if you look at the size of the battery, and what kind of mileage range they get for a given size of battery. You know, Tesla is actually doing a better job than anybody um, right now, you know, in, in the segments where they're competing. You know, if you look at, you know, the, um, you know, the Model X, you know, for example, you know, getting uh, 295 miles of range, you know, out of, a, <clears throat> excuse me, out of a 90 kilowatt hour battery pack, you know, and the Jaguar I-Pace, which is a much smaller, much lighter vehicle, you know, only getting 234 miles of range out of the same size battery pack, you know, and, you know, seeing, seeing similar things, you know, the, the e-tron as good as it might be in a lot of ways, you know, is similarly challenged in its uh, range capabilities for the, you know, for 95 kilowatt hour battery pack. Uh, and same with the Mercedes EQC, uh, you know, the, the power conversion efficiency, that's an area where Tesla has really innovated and done some, some really cool stuff. And that's where everybody needs to be playing catch up. Well, right. that's that's where um, that's where the automotive automaker that actually buys them out of bankruptcy is going to benefit. <laughs> yes, I do just want to comment. I do love the fact that they have put in this dog mode. Have you, have you guys seen it? It came yeah. out yesterday. No, I mean, I think all of those things are you know that's a it's a way to keep your car in the news. So it's, it's clever and it's it's software and it's something that you can do in any car. Tesla happens to be actually very good about coming up with those things that, you know, they are shiny objects, but they're also things that people will use because they're there. And it, absolutely right. But I do, th I mean, it's a good example of where Tesla is an amazingly nimble yeah. and company, you know, to say, Hey, you know what, we can do this and let's, and let's just do it. Let's just throw it out there. And again, their buyers are incredibly forgiving in that, you know, now God forbid this Tesla dog mode doesn't work. And so just for people, <laughs> it, it basically puts a, you know, it leaves the air conditioning running on hot days to keep the dog safe inside. And then it uses the big giant screen to tell people that look inside my owner will be back shortly. You know, the car is air conditioned all is well in my, in my world, but you know, I just I think it's it's super clever and it humanizes the Tesla brand uh, in ways that a lot of manufacturers don't humanize their brand. And so, I, you know, again, it's a it's a very clever it's a very clever way of using the technology. And, and they and they put these things out really quickly. It's amazing. On, yeah. on the other hand, you know, I'd, I'd like to see them focus a little more on you know some of the fundamentals uh, like, you know, making sure that, you know, on cold days, those 
frameless windows can actually drop down a little bit so you can Sam, open the door. Sam, Sam, details, or the, details. the door Come handles on. to pop out. You know, yeah. I bet you probably want OTA updates that are actually tested. <laughs> well, well let's, let's not go overboard. <laughs> I was a dog tested uh, a parent approved, but I think that's Subaru. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's, before we start to hate too much on Tesla, let's move on. <laughs> uh, it's probably our, it's our last topic. Um, there's a new inline six from Land Rover to replace their very old V6. And we, we also had a uh, Twitter question sort of about the difference between a V6 and inline six, uh, you know, the shape, but if there's benefits and trade-offs. So uh, why don't we uh, jump in and sort of answer those questions and, and cover the new Land Rover inline six. Sure. Yeah. You mentioned that, that old V6. I mean, that that's actually based on, you know, Ford's old Duratec V6 that debuted back in the 1990s. Uh, you know, and, you know, it was adapted for Jaguar uh, and, and Land Rover. And so it's, it's been around for a while and they're finally replacing it with the new Ingenium V6, which is basically their, you know, the four cylinder engines that they've had for the last few years uh, with two more cylinders added on there. Uh, so, you know, the, the question we got from Dallas on Twitter was, you know, what's the real difference between a V6 and an inline six? You know, and just the shape, but what are the benefits and trade-offs? Um, you know, an inline six, obviously, you know, all six cylinders are in line, hence the name, you know, and they're all parallel to each other. Um, uh, a V6, you know, you have two banks of three cylinders that are have some angle in between them, typically either 60 or 90 degrees. Um uh, 60 the, the, good, 90 bad. Uh, yeah. Not 90 for the worse. most part. <laughs> um, you know, although there there are some surprisingly good 90 degree V6s. Uh, that Jaguar V6 is a 90 degree and it's it's uh, it's got balance. No, it's shafts a 60. And, oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's a 60. Uh, um, but but Honda's V6s have always been 90 degree V6s and they're they're great engines. Really? That's a 90 de- wow. Yeah. Okay. So, so anyway, yeah. To <laughs> uh to address the question of you know what Inline sixes are always better uh, because they're smoother. They're 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 inherently balanced uh, because of the the nature of the way the the uh, ignition pulses happen and and the forces acting on the engine. Um, you know it's balanced in both. You know I'm not going to go into all the the technical details, uh, but it, you know they're balanced. First in order uh, imbalances are all canceled out. And so when you when you have an an engine with an inline six cylinder engine. Or a car with an inline six-cylinder engine, you know, it's a it's amazing how smooth that engine is. And generally, you know, the more cylinders you have, the better it's going to be because you have smaller gaps between power pulses, and you know, uh, things will cancel each other up. But you can still have imbalances in even in V8 engines. V12s are the the next best thing to uh, you know, or the next step up from a from an inline six. <laughs> V6s do tend to no matter what. Uh, bank angle you use, there are some imbalances. Even a 60 degree V6 has some imbalances, uh, but they're not as pronounced as what you get on, say, an inline four cylinder. The The reason why, you know, we went to a lot of V6s over the last 30 years is, you know, as we transitioned a lot of vehicles from rear wheel drive to front wheel drive so, and turned the engine 90 degrees so it's transverse, inline sixes, you know, because the engine, the cylinders are all parallel to each other, also tend to be a little longer. Um, a V6 tends to be a little more compact in length. It's wider, but it's it's shorter. And it tends to fit better between the strut towers of a front-wheel drive vehicle. Um, 
And also, you know, in a lot of cases, you know, a lot of V6s were created by taking old V8s and chopping two cylinders off, um, you know, as, as GM was and, and Ford were both want to do in the, the 1980s. Well, so uh, that's that's interesting. The SX V6, the 3.8 liter Ford is not a 302 minus two cylinders. That was that was a clean sheet design. And, and the, the, tel, it, the tel is the distributor location. Yeah, but it it's it still you know it it shared it shared some architectural things with the Essex. Oh, I bet. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, like, I think the I think the I'm pretty sure the bore spacing was the same as the Essex. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, probably yeah. Uh, depending on where they the the, the, to, uh, the Windsor. The Windsor, I mean. yeah, probably had to go down their lines. So they were compromising. So, Engineers compromise. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, engin- engineering is always a compromise. You know, um, inline sixes were always preferred. Um, you know, and that's why BMW has continued to build inline sixes forever. They've they've never done a V6 engine. They've always built inlines uh, because they were they were always superior in terms of performance and 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 smoothness and reliability. Um, V6s, you know, I said more compact. They can shake a little more, um, but they can fit into places where an inline can't. Now, as we're starting to get a lot of these newer vehicles, or even you know vehicles that um, you know never went front wheel drive. You know, they're starting to go back to inline sixes, um, you know, on the, um, uh, you know, the um, Mercedes launched a, a new inline six last year uh, on the, the CLS and the S class. And, and it's launching here in the U.S. this year uh, in the, the E53 models. Um, the you know, modern inline sixes, you know, with modern, you know, with the things that they've learned about designing cylinder blocks and everything, they've actually been able to and and managing the coolant flow through the block and the new materials they've actually managed to make the blocks more compact than they used to be so they're they're still not as short as a v6 but they they'll fit into tighter spaces now and they're being used in in rear wheel drive applications um and in the in this case of this new jaguar engine or the jaguar land rover engine it's actually launching in the in a limited edition version of the uh, range rover sport um, that's currently only for the UK market. Uh, and I heard from, uh, my contact at Jaguar, uh, Land Rover, uh, it'll be launching in the U S next year. This is actually their first one. That's also a 48 volt mild hybrid and it's twin charged. So it's got a, a exhaust driven turbo, but it's also got an electric supercharger, huh. uh, that's driven off the 48 volt system to, to provide that low end boost, you know, and it can spin up to, to 65,000 RPM in less than half a second. Uh, to give you full boost in less than half a second. Uh, they're not the first to do this. The, the, that Mercedes inline six also has a similar capability. And when Audi launched the SQ7 uh, in Europe a couple of years ago uh, with the first 48 volt system, they also did that on that vehicle. I wonder if it's the same supplier for all three for that supercharger. Um, it might be. It, it's uh, it's it's probably it's almost certainly one of uh, one of two suppliers. It's probably. Either uh, Vallejo or uh, Borg Warner. Uh, I know Borg Warner supplies the electric turbo for uh, Mercedes, or the electric supercharger for Mercedes, and Vallejo supplies the one that Audi uses. So it's probably one of those two. Although it could be a Honeywell as well. They're also doing one. Huh. That's. I mean, it's just. Sorry, getting that's like auto geekdom, but um, you know, the, I think one of the other reasons for them making this inline six too has got to be for emissions. That other. V6 if they're they're transitioning out of now is it's old. Um oh yeah. Well emission emissions and 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 fuel economy, you know, because they're doing the 48 volt mild hybrid, 
um, like uh, uh, FCA is doing on the uh, the Wrangler and on the Ram fifteen hundred. Yeah, and so are they expecting it to actually just sort of slot in where that existing engine does and be on par in terms of power? Are we expecting more, or what's? The- yeah, no, it'll it'll be uh, it'll actually probably be a little more. Um, Right now, there's two versions of it uh, with like 355 and 395 horsepower, um, and uh, so that you know, for a three liter inline six, that's that's not too shabby. No, that's 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 pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna gonna damn it with kind of faint praise. Uh, all right, I've, my biggest question is like now now they have a proper engine, right? Like uh, uh, Jaguars are supposed to have inline sixes, and Land Rovers. I mean, Land Rovers and, um, are supposed to have 3.9 liter V8s from. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure. I'm sure the. Uh, I don't think we're going to see the three nine V eight come back anytime soon. No, but uh, but I'm sure that we will have uh, Jaguar, you know, Jaguar XFs, uh, you know, uh, with this, and probably the XE uh, with this engine uh, before long, and uh, as well as you know other Land Rover, Range Rover models as well. Doesn't strike me as a bad thing. No. Right. Well, I, I think we answered the question pretty pretty thoroughly. <laughs> yep. Uh, Sam, you and I talked with Mike Pruitt from Ford about the new uh, 2020 Super Duty, and you know overall, but also more specifically about the 7.3 liter pushrod V8 that everybody wants to know about. Uh, and so he offered us some detail, and I'm sure we'll have more to come on that when they start to uh, invite journalists to come see and come drive and and release more information about the engine but it's it's a really interesting development from ford and uh he had a few things to say that were were informative so uh, we'll tack that on at the end of the um episode here and uh we'll see everybody next week all right bye thank you bye all right and you can head on over to apple podcasts and leave us a review or drop some feedback into the review section of your podcatcher of choice if you want to get in touch with us we're at wheelbearingscast at gmail uh you can comment of course on any of the posts at wheelbearings.media uh the twitter handle is at wheelbearingscast only vowel is the a in the cast and thanks for listening mike pruitt uh thank you very much for joining us on the wheelbearings podcast we're here to talk about the new 2020 super duty that debuted in chicago to a, a bit of fanfare yeah thanks mike um uh, question for you i mean i think you know probably the biggest news about the the 2020 truck is the powertrain upgrades um you added a new gas uh v8 an all-new gas v8 and significantly updated the uh the diesel uh added the third generation of the diesel let let's start with the the 7.3 liter gas v8 First of all, why a new gasoline V8 and, you know, why an all new design like this one, you know, a, a, a cam and block, uh, cast iron block, you know, as opposed to um, something based on the existing 6.2 liter that you already had in the Super Duty? Sure. Um, so I, I guess start with the kind of the why, um, you know, today it's it's a piece with, that was kind of missing in our lineup. Uh, between uh, in our retail world, between our 6.2 liter base gas, and then of course our upgraded 6.7 liter uh, diesel, and what we were aiming for is trying to provide that that increase in capability, but not necessarily the complete cost and complexity of going to a diesel. So that was uh, you know within Super Duty, uh, kind of the why and the, and the missing aspect that our customers were saying that they were looking for. Um, but at the same time, you know, we as Ford, 
we look across all of our businesses, across our commercial businesses and, and other areas, and um, you don't take an all-new uh, engine lightly, right? This is a, a big investment and a lot of work. So we aim to try to find the, an engine that's going to be there not only for Super Duty, but for other areas in our portfolio. Uh, in particular, um, you know, like in our, our medium-duty trucks. So this is a, a, a gas engine that's going to be capable of delivering the capability that's needed in these medium-duty, the F650 and F750s, but also serve our customers in the Super Duty world. It sounds like there's plans to put it in other vehicles. I mean, certainly the, the, the medium-duty trucks are somewhat related to the Super Duties, but is it going anywhere else, or is it mostly a, uh, a I, truck? I guess I, I better I, – I, I don't have my lawyers here, so I, just, <laughs> I want to be able to, to, to – We don't comment on future product, <laughs> right? I get it. <laughs> so, uh, Mike – um, the, in the in the announcement last week of this uh, new engine, this, the new 7.3 liter, didn't really talk too much about uh, power levels. Uh, the 6.2 is currently at three, 385 horsepower, 430 foot-pounds of torque. Um, the diesel, the, the previous, the second-gen diesel was at 450 foot-pounds horsepower and 935 foot-pounds. Where does the 7.3 fall in that range? How, how much more are you getting versus the 6.2? So I... Um we're not at this point ready to be able to divulge the precise numbers of that, but I can tell you that this will be the most powerful gas that we've put in a Super Duty ever. And it would be, I guess, the appropriate thing is it will be somewhere in between those two, between the 6.2 and the 6.7. Okay. okay. Probably not as specific as you'd like, but that's the best we can do. <laughs> well, it's early yet. Uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, these these things rarely are as specific as we would like. Yeah, I know. I know. You know, I was really curious about uh, because Ford has spent I don't know thirty years invested in overhead cam V8s. Um, was it a challenge to relearn? how to do a, a cam and block engine, you know, did you have to draw on some old hands who, who had experience back with the Windsors and the Clevelands or, or was it, uh, you know, a, a, an opportunity to do something similar, but with a clean sheet? I think it's more of the latter. It's an opportunity to start something with a clean sheet. We've got some uh, incredibly, incredibly smart uh, guys over here at our engine area. And, and like I said, it was a clean sheet of, hey, we want to produce a truck engine that's going to serve our commercial customers as well as this retail customer. You've got a blank sheet of paper. How would you guys do this? And that's where we've, where we've ended up. Always trying to keep in mind, you know, the cost of ownership challenges that you have in the, in the commercial area uh, as well as in the, in the retail and in, in the thrive for horsepower and torque and its improved capability. Ford has already announced plans to do electrification in the light duty F series uh, coming, you know, F-150 hybrid coming next year. And, and uh, Mr. Ford recently talked about, you know, eventually doing a full electric version of it. And there's new new competitors coming into the the heavy duty and, and medium duty segments uh, in the in the next few years or, or even sooner than that, that are fully electric. Do you foresee a time in the in the not too distant future when we'll see electrified uh, super duties and potentially medium duties uh, from Ford as well? Well, I mean, we are always looking to improve ourselves um, in the, not only in the super duty area, but across our, our, our whole truck lineup. But uh, I don't think we're in a position where we can talk about future plans. 
Well, let, let me let me let me rephrase the question a little bit then. Um, do you? I mean, right now, or you know, in the in the near term, do you see electrification as you know, electric powertrains as a viable alternative for these types of vehicles? I mean, you know, Ford has a lot of experience in there. You, you know, you sell a lot of vehicles in these segments. Do you see electrification as a suitable alternative right now, or is that something that you think is better left to some future date? So, so the electrification in this area is is a real challenge, right? There's a demand out there for um, the the zero emissions and and uh, leveraging this technology, but at the same time, these trucks are are have to to, to do the purpose, right, and pull the payload. Uh, and so until you until you've been able to solve that equation. Um, you know, it's going to be uh, it's going to have to have some more work done. So, you know, let's talk about more than just powertrains, too. Uh, it seems like there's a couple of simultaneous fronts going on in the, the heavy-duty pickup wars, I guess you could call them. Uh, you know, on the one hand, you've got the numbers war with, you know, towing capacity, maximum torque, maybe even fuel economy. Uh, but there's also uh, luxury and features or, or tech uh, war that's going on in the HD truck space. You know, they're not all about work and nothing else anymore. They're getting quite cushy. So how do you determine what's important sort of on, on both fronts? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you know, we as, um, we as in Super Duty really brought luxury into this segment. Um, it, when we started introducing the King Ranch and then uh, later the Platinum and then the Limited Edition. So the, there's and it's always a delicate balance of of it, but it never at the compromise of being able to do work, right? And never at that compromise. And the delicate balance that we're always looking for and trying to understand the demands from the customer. So yes, I you know, from that aspect in the luxury area, uh, they want it to work during the week and then uh, play on the weekends or or do after it's done its work for the day. Uh, be able to go out for dinner and perform the, the other purposes. So that's something we've been very keen to, and we will continue to do. Uh, on the technology side, um, you know, the, nowadays the request to bring in some of the technologies you see in some of the smaller cars, um, whether it's the lane departure warnings or uh, you know, pre-collision assist with automatic emergency braking. All of those things are things that the customer has said that they want to see in this, this segment. So we're bringing that in. Um, embedded modems and the ability for these teams to, to leverage the Wi-Fi services that that provides and the connectivity and the smartness, especially for our, our um, commercial customers. Uh, and that's going to be standard in every single Super Duty for 2020. So it, it might it might be a little easy to assume that the truck audience might be kind of tech averse, you know. But there's there's a lot of driver aid systems packed into the new Super Duties that help with things such as you know backing up a trailer um, and even just, just sure. the the ADAS, you know, lane keeping and, and that kind of thing. Is there is is that stuff that people are asking for, or uh, is there skepticism? But then it, it gets embraced pretty pretty quickly. No, for sure. I, I think there's a mixture that we, there is some request out there for, hey, I, I want to protect my asset. And in particular, 
um, you know, you're not only protecting the people. You're, these are these are very expensive assets that, that some of these people have invested in. So if we can prevent that collision, or if we can minimize any the damage associated with it, that's a uh, that's right back to their bottom dollar. That's very important. Um, you know, we these trucks tow some very large trailers and very large payloads, and and in some cases they have to fit this trailer in some pretty tight spaces. So everything that we can do to help them get that, you know, those big trucks in some of the tightest spaces with through technology, and that's why we worked so hard in what would it take to bring Pro Trailer back up to SIS, which we have an F-150, into the Super Duty realm. Yeah, speaking so, of... There will be some, some of those guys that just choose not to use it, but then there's going to be a, a, a very large portion that are going to find that technology very useful and make their life more efficient. It's not that they have to have it, just making their lives easier. Yeah, speaking of the the, tra- the pro trailer backup assist, I mean, uh, you know, I had a, an opportunity to actually try that out on the uh, expedition last year, and uh, it was as someone who does not normally drive such large vehicles and, and doesn't tow trailers, um, you know, I, I personally found it very helpful. Um, but I'm curious, you know. Um, I, I was last week at the Chicago show. I was speaking to somebody from one of your competitors who was rather dismissive of the, of that particular technology. Um, and uh, I'm curious, you know, if you have any data, you know, from F-150 owners about, you know, how much or how, you know, how frequently they use it when they're towing, you know, it, and kind of what's the response been from, from F-150 drivers uh, to that, that particular technology. Well, so in the F-150 area, I think we've had a very positive uh, response from that technology. Um, and uh, and I, I think there is an element of um, the guy, some people that are going to admit to using the technology and others that are, um, you know, that may not use it. You know, it's kind of that, that I, I'm, I'm manly. I know how to back up a trailer. I don't help. Um, but, you know, if you look at the vast... Um, variety of trailers, whether it be on the conventional trailers and gooseneck and fifth wheels, the length of these trailers. And in many cases, it's not always just one person that's driving that asset, right? It's going to have multiple drivers. Anything you can do to make them more efficient and protect that asset, it's very, very critical in this space. Does Pro Trailer Backup Assist work with with a gooseneck? So that's an important, that's an important aspect. So yes, we have developed the Pro Trailer Backup Assist as well as our Trailer Reverse Guidance, which we were we launched in 2017. Both of those two work in cohesion to provide that, that improved backup, um, and it works for fifth wheel and gooseneck. Does, uh, does it work basically the same way, uh, if I recall correctly, on the... Uh on the uh, the standard trailers, um, you put a you have to put a uh, a sticker on there, uh, you know that it, that the camera reads to measure the angle and everything, uh, and you you calibrate you can calibrate it for a number of different trailers. Um, does it is it use the same basic concept on when doing a, a gooseneck or fifth wheel trailer? So no, for um, for the fifth wheel and the gooseneck, it, it is a stickerless um, solution that we have for twenty model year. On the conventional, okay. it does use a, a lot of the, the same uh, things that you saw in the F-150. Um, but, a, again, on for the fifth wheel and the gooseneck, it is no stickers. Yeah. 
I, I've only got one more one more question, uh, and that's kind of an all encompassing uh, idea. Is you know how how nervous does it make you when you redesign the HD trucks? You know, Automotive News said that the Ford HD truck business alone is a Fortune 40 big business, you know, larger than Procter & Gamble. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. Uh, it certainly is. Um, we, we, you know, we don't go lightly when you start talking about changing uh, in our F-series, right? And uh, we, we're very methodical, um, but we've, that doesn't mean that we're not going to change, right? Uh, what we've always stood for is listening to our customers and always improving our product. And that's why you'll see we launched this fantastic Super Duty generation in 2017, which has been uh, fantastic for us. But we immediately started working on improvements, in, especially inside the, the powertrain area, to get more capability, the more power, the more payload, more technology. So we're always improving. But it's always on a mind of, uh, of understanding uh you're not going to just sit back and rest on your laurels. You can't do that. I, I, I guess the question I have, you know, came, I got a number of uh, inquiries from, from other media last week, about why, you know, why Ford and, and your comp, your competitors keep upping the ante with uh, heavy duty trucks uh, like the super duty, you know, how, how much payload, how much towing capability do you actually need? I mean, how how, how long does this, um, you know, continuous leapfrogging of each other um, continue on, especially, um, you know, in light of, you know, companies like Ford, you know, also at the same time talking about, you know, trying to improve fuel economy and, you know, doing more electrification on their, their light duty vehicles, um, you know, how how big of a market you know for for our listeners out there how big of a market is there for these kinds of really uh capable vehicles well um we're always finding the customer asking for more they're always asking for more whether it's more capability uh, better fuel economy um, um a nicer truck more technology protect them so they're always uh, looking for that, and it, it, even in the capability area. Um, and I, I know a lot of people are saying, "Wow, when is when is enough enough?" Right? Then when do you when are you uh, the the point of return is is becoming small? But I don't think we're there yet. That's for sure. Um, and we've had a lot of uh, these trucks are delivering now. What is not too long ago, you would have to have had a medium duty truck to do. You may have even had to have a commercial, a CDL driver's license, right? Um, and, and in some cases, you, you do uh, on this Super Duty, depending on what you turn. But these are very capable trucks. And uh, it, it's uh, from a customer perspective, it's always wanting more. Yeah, I mean, b both of your two primary competitors, you know, are now claiming um, top towing capabilities in excess of 35,000 pounds. And I would assume that by the time uh, this refreshed uh, uh, Super Duty comes out, uh, you, will, you will have a, a similar claim, if not, you know, leapfrogging them as well. Um, you know, how, how high do you, you know, ultimately see these kinds of towing capabilities go? Do you think, you know, are we going to get to 40,000 uh, pounds or more? Or is that really, you know, is that going to fall into the realm of, you know, the bigger medium-duty trucks? 
Well, let me just take that in two pieces. One, we will uh, be delivering the highest capability, the highest payloads that we have ever done in the Super Duty. Um, and uh, as far as how high could this class go, I guess I don't know. I really don't know. It's always going to be a push for uh, us to, uh, to deliver that incremental capability, um, I think, uh, in the short and near term. It's, it's certainly just going to continue to push, but I don't know where the, the ceiling is. Okay. One, one last one before I hand it back to Dan. Um, the, uh, the, t- the 10-speed transmission that's in here, is, is that based on the 10-speed um, the that is currently in the F-150, or is this a new transmission? It's a new version. It is. It started with the the, the 10R80. Uh, I guess is the kind of the architect to start. But as you can imagine, this transmission is going to have to be more capable than what the one that's in the F-150. So um, it's going to have to be sturdier, more beefy, handle more torque. Uh, so we're, we're calling this the 10R140 transmission. Okay. You know, let's let's finish it off and just. Um Maybe there's a, a, a challenge or a problem or just uh, some kind of anecdotal uh, story you could maybe share about uh, bringing this truck to, to market. Any, any interesting wrinkle that you think our listeners might uh, enjoy hearing about, a little inside baseball that you could talk about? I'm going to put you on the spot. <laughs> you are. Um, so I think, um, you know, when you're, when you're pushing the limits uh, and where you where you being the leader today and we uh, our next generation of trucks, we had to go out and get more capable trailers and things to test these the test these vehicles. And um, that's always a, a kind of a proud moment here in Super Duty Land, right? That we want to push the limits of of what we have. So um, <laughs> you know, it's been a while since we've had to go upgrade our trailers and fleets in order to do this testing, but we had to do that for this. Oh, so the trailers couldn't handle the, the towing load? They were, they were breaking? Well, I, I would say that they, we needed upgraded trailers to perform our testing that we wanted to do. Huh. You, could, you couldn't get enough weight to push the truck to, the, to its limits? Or a more capable trailers and equipment to handle what we were going to test. But, you know, back in 2017, we had to get new trailers. And then we turned around, and three years later, here with 2020, we had to get even bigger trailers, right? All right. Well, um, I don't know about you, Dan, but uh, I, I really appreciate um, you taking the time to talk with us today, Mike. This has been really informative, and, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the insights you've provided about, you know, kind of the rationale behind the 7.3 liter uh, have been very helpful, and, and uh, I think uh, our listeners will really appreciate this. Yeah, I, you know, I, we spent a lot of time on the 7.3, which I understand why, right? That's new. But, um you know, I'm I'm just as proud of all the work on this third generation 6.7 liter, which I think everyone's going to be very excited when we, you know, when they see the final product. And then mating both of those engines as well as the 6.2 behind the 10 speed transmission, it's really, really exciting uh, to see what this this Super Duty is going to be capable of and how confident it's going to do its job. You know, that's that's one thing that actually uh, makes me think for a second. You know, the 
the Power Stroke engine, the, the 6.7, it's a very interesting engine. It's a hot V with a variable geometry turbocharger. You know, that that's it's pretty exotic, actually. And, it, you know, given how sophisticated, complex, and, and expensive the emissions controls have become, you know, diesel is st- still a, a worthwhile investment, and there's still enough um, demand for that, even given all of the the issues from an ownership side, you know, you talked about uh, total cost of ownership uh, a little earlier with the decision for the, the gas engine, but diesel is still something that is, is in demand enough that makes it, it worthwhile to, to invest that much in, in the engine? Very much so. Very much so. And um, it is by far the most popular uh, powertrain offering that we have in Super Duty. And, you know, I think a lot of these customers... Um, they're very astute, and they'll they'll take a look at the full cost of ownership. So, yeah, a diesel might be more expensive up front, but but when you're putting lots of miles on them behind the heavy towing trailers, and they're calculating that fuel economy, and you know at the end of the day, um, the diesel might be a better uh, option for some of the customers than others. But it is by far the most popular engine. That, that's a similar argument that was made for the uh, the diesel, the three liter diesel in the F one fifty. You know, it's it's really targeted more at the customers that are towing on a regular, consistent basis, as opposed to those that you know maybe only tow a few times a year. Because when you when you do start towing those heavy loads, um, you know, with the gas engine, it does it does have a much bigger impact on your fuel consumption than it does with a diesel. So it sounds like um, you know the popularity of the diesel. Uh, on the super duty has to do with the fact that they're much more frequently used for towing those heavy loads. Yeah, I, I think I think it's like ninety percent of our customers are actively towing uh, versus a, a, a something I would assume is much smaller in the F one fifty. I'm not first to that number, but in our segment, very much so, ninety plus percent. Well, that's what the trucks are for, right. you know. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So, all right, we're really, we're really done this time. But so, thanks, right. uh, Mike, for, for joining us on uh, Wheel Bearings. All right, thanks, guys. Thank you know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.